Hello, Plastic Tales listeners. Uh, this is Matt, and I'm here with a very special guest, Professor Jeremy Gilbert, uh, who is Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London. And we're here today to talk about uh, Professor Gilbert's really excellent book, uh, 21st Century Socialism, which was released just last year with Polity. Um, it's a very short, very readable book. Uh, so you could probably kill it in an afternoon, actually, if you had nothing better to do. Uh, so you should pick that up. Uh, but thanks a lot for coming on the show, Jeremy. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excellent. So what inspired you to write this book? Um, a lot of us have talked about how it is that socialism has endured a kind of resurgence in the 21st century. You see people like AOC, you see people like Jeremy Corbyn, uh, and most notably Bernie Sanders, uh, who... I'll just be candid. Uh, I never would have expected uh, it would be a major competitor for the U.S. presidency uh, back in the early 2000s. Uh, so I kind of had to eat my expectations by the time 2016 rolled around. Uh, but what motivated you to talk about this subject? Uh, well, to be honest, what motivated me was that the, guy, the people editing that series at Polity like, asked, wouldn't stop asking me to write the book for them. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think the vibe was they, they had a, a proposal for this series and had told them they would get me to do it because I had done an article about on this topic of 21st century socialism. Really what motivated me to get it done was a couple of converging factors. Um, one was the fact that I had been teaching sort of fairly high level sort of social theory and a sort of analysis of 20th century history from a leftist perspective. Uh, two undergraduates, mostly undergraduates from fairly sort of non- standard backgrounds as we say in the UK I mean that means basically like not socially elite backgrounds um, and so I felt like I'd got quite a lot of experience of getting a lot of these arguments down in a fairly accessible form um, but I had never really kind of made much effort to do that for uh, you know an audience outside my students at the university and also I felt I, I kind of imagined that the readership for the book was going to be primarily you know it wasn't primarily I wasn't kind of deluding myself that it was going to be a kind of mass bestseller that would that would um, convert lots of unconverted people to socialism and it's going to compete with I, Stephen King you know yeah exactly what I thought it would do was really kind of clarify a set of arguments um, that would be useful to people who probably already thought of themselves in some sense as socialists, but would, you know, um, would kind of pass on some of that experience I'd acquired in, in framing a set of arguments and analyses for a fairly broad audience in a way that would be useful. And and I would say, you know, the the feedback I've had about the book has been pretty much along those lines. I, I, guess, I guess I kind of was surprised. I, I mean, quite a lot of people seem to have found a lot of the kind of arguments in the book more new than I expected them to. Um, but a lot of other people have, have said to me, a lot of kind of friends in the movement, in the Labour movement, and the Labour Party and various strands of left activism had said, yeah, it's a really good book for giving you a set of really simple, you know, accessible ways of explaining a socialist position on contemporary politics and culture. Uh, to other people who are kind of haven't, you know, are not as kind of politically aware or politically educated yet. Uh, and that was really what I was, and it was the kind of the sense that a book like that would be useful to quite a lot of activists and campaigners was, I guess, the thing that really motivated me to get it done. Yeah, well, I absolutely agree with what your friends are saying to you, because uh, I do think it's a really good primer, um, both on the history of socialism uh, and what socialists should do contemporaneously. Uh, but yeah, m moving on. Uh, in chapter two, uh, it's a very good ch uh, chapter, by the way, why socialism, uh, you argue, and I quote, the basic claim of socialism is that the world should not be run by a tiny clique of capitalists who act solely in their own interest, 
uh, by all the people on the planet as they work and think together for the common good. Socialism has a very different understanding of humans and their relationships from that found in the capitalist story. It also happens to be understanding that is far more grounded in material, historical, and scientific reality. Uh, so, as we say, you know, shots fired. Uh, could you unpack this claim a little bit? So, first off, why should we not be run by a tiny clique of capitalists who act solely in their interests? And why is it you think that socialism uh, has a much more robust and grounded conception of who human beings actually are than our capitalist counterparts? Well, I mean, the, the answer to the first question is I, I don't think anybody even tries to make a kind of argument these days that it's actually, you know, that the, an elite in, that, in the position that the contemporary capitalist elites are in are going to do anything but act in their own interests. I mean, you know, I, I mean, there are, I mean, there are people who will use arguments derived from a certain kind of liberal tradition, which would say, yes, they will just act in their own interests, but that will end up being in everybody's interests. And other parts of the book, you know, kind of demonstrate why that might not be the case. Um, but the but nobody really today tries to make an argument for what you might call classical elitism, apart from some, you know, people in weird bits of the sort of alt-right or the you know hyper-traditionalist conservative right in the states who have no, have no kind of bearing upon contemporary politics really nobody's making the kind of argument you would have heard at one time which is you know actually it's good that these people are are an elite behaving like an elite yeah i mean i often talk about uh evan burke in reflections of the revolution in france where he talks about the swinish multitude right you know god forbid uh, any politician talks about the swinish multitude today they'd be crucified uh, by their own supporters probably right yeah exactly well it's one reason why kind of you know research into the sort of ideology of meritocracy is so important today because it's a really it, it's historically an unusual situation that we're in from that perspective which is that you know, we have an elite that doesn't, that wants to disown its status as an elite, you know, that doesn't, that wants to claim, well, it's not an elite, it's just a bunch of people who happen to have worked harder and been smarter than all the other people, um, which isn't really what an elite even means. Um, so we have a kind of social elite that is disowned its own status. And we also have a kind of middle class, I think, a very privileged middle class. This is true, definitely, in the States and the UK, and perpetual fear of, of its own precarity and people are really kind of in denial about their own status as an elite. You know, you see this kind of anxiety about, you know, whether kids are going to retain their social position and go to the, get to the right schools, get to the right universities, where actually all the statistical evidence is, look, if, you're, if your kids are, if you, if you are a member of the professional classes, your kids will be too, pretty much whatever they do, with very few statistical exceptions. So, yeah, it is a really weird situation that we're in historically, that people are, we have these various layers of, of privilege um, and the people enjoying it uh, at the top, like want to deny that, that, that they're enjoying it. And the people kind of just below them also are just kind of completely, I think, genuinely don't realise. They genuinely sort of believe this story according to which uh, their privileged status is, is, is vulnerable and is under threat and has to be defended through kind of hard work and discipline and, and also kind of, you know, uh, you know, oppressing other people in various ways. Yeah, I think it's very interesting, uh, especially when you look at the kind of attitudes people take towards elitism, uh, that there's kind of a bifurcation in the way that elites conceive themselves. Because uh, on the one hand, they understand that we live in a very competitive um, neoliberal society, and they use every kind of wedge they can in order to gain an advantage for themselves and for their children. Uh, but one of the interesting things, of course, is that because we also live in a culture that's highly egalitarian in certain respects, not materially egalitarian, but morally egalitarian, 
Uh, you also see elites try to disown uh, the idea that they're somehow privileged or better by nature, right? Uh, there was some really good research done uh, <laughs> that was reported in the New York Times where uh, a researcher was actually looking into the attitudes of people who made $2 million or more in New York. Uh, and it turned out that people with $2 million or more in New York didn't actually consider themselves rich because uh, their idea was that rich people were people who had private planes, right? Not people who flew first class. They were middle class, you know, up and comers. Uh, and what the researcher pointed out that was remarkable is the fact that these people did everything that they could uh, to dissociate from the idea that they were somehow privileged or better than others, even while materially they were, of course, far more affluent than 99.9% .9 of the world's population. So it's a very odd kind of tension. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's that there's that great uh, book. I can't remember the name of the author now. It's an, an American sociologist um, looking at uh, students at St. Paul's. I think I think it was St. Paul's and, and the absolute conviction of, of the students at this this uh, prep school that that they work much harder than than ordinary high school students and the and the completely demonstrable empirical evidence that they don't. So anyway, I mean, I guess in terms of your question, all, all of the, all of those are reasons why we shouldn't be governed by this elite. Because apart from anything else, they're sort of uh, they're either lying or deluded. So that would be a good reason not to want to be governed by them to some extent. I think on the other the other question you asked about, you know, the uh, you know socialism having a more realistic view of human nature. I think, yeah, I mean, this is something I've written about in other contexts, a, a little bit in a book called Common Ground from a few years ago. But I think, and I think it is something that we haven't really made as much out of, kind of on the broader left, as we should do. Partly because I think um, there's, yeah, I mean, I think you know all of the best kind of contemporary anthropology, neuroscience, psychology, etc., makes very clear that the kind of liberal conception of what it means to be human, which is which that we are these fundamentally like separate, atomized individuals in competition with each other for resources and status and social relations are sort of things that happen to us rather than things that make us and constitute us from even before we're born now that conception is just demonstrably wrong i mean it's just it's wrong at the level in, in which brains you know of brain function you know that it's just not true um and it's demonstrably not true and it's kind of not true in ways which people in the radical tradition to some extent you know uh, you know bits, bits of the conservative tradition and and some bits you know the kind of socially oriented bits of the liberal tradition have all been saying you know for hundreds of years now we've all been saying that's wrong you know you can go right back to john dunn in the 17th century saying oh no man is an island in response to the kind of emergence of this anomic you know conception of the individual human subject and it's still a very powerful element of kind of bourgeois and neoliberal ideology to claim that actually they they are the ones with a kind of realistic conception of human nature because they know the truth and the truth is humans are kind of greedy and selfish and and that socialism doesn't work because humans are greedy and selfish and, and it expects them to be altruistic. Uh, like all of which is nonsense. Socialism doesn't expect people to be altruistic. It it, it, it believes we need institutions which you know apply, which make which do to some extent compel us all to be you know cooperate with each other and to and it or to enable us to cooperate with each other. Not because not out of altruism, but because if we are able institutionally and materially to cooperate with each other effectively, then the distinction between altruism and self interest you know disappears anyway. So. I think uh, so that is what I mean when I say I think actually socialism has a more sort of robust a more scientifically robust conception of what it means to be a human being because because it recognizes the interdep our interdependence 
and that our interdependence is not a sort of supplement to our status yeah, as individuals. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything that you say, uh, with one exception, actually. I think that what makes neoliberalism interesting ideologically uh, is actually, if you look at the work of like people like Hayek uh, or even someone like Ludwig von Mises, it's a point where many uh, liberal figures became aware of the fact that their vision of human nature wasn't actually all that realistic, uh, but they insisted that institutions need to remold people into the image uh, of their preferred vision of what human beings should be, precisely because they acknowledge that people don't want to live in a hyper-competitive, highly stratified society uh, where everyone is chasing the dollar, as it were. They felt that nonetheless, this would be the most economically efficient kind of human being that there could be. So institutions need to create that person, right? Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting work done on neoliberal subjectivation in that way. Yeah, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. Um, I couldn't, I can't put that better myself. And it's a really, uh, it is a really important kind of observation. And there, and there is, you know, there is, um, it's interesting that the extent to which you know we you know in a country like the united states you do have a layer of kind of ideological neoliberals who've really kind of bought into the full neoliberal program like even to the point of understanding that neoliberalism right, is right. just something is something indeed neoliberalism is about imposing liberal norms on a, on a population that isn't going to be organically liberal in its behaviors but you also have, I think, a much, a lot of the time, a much bigger layer of people in institutions and the broader public who are—they're not really neoliberals, but they are as liberals, and so, and they do sort of have some conception that, well, this is just—it's just kind of natural, like what neoliberalism is trying to go with the grain of people's natural behaviour. And of course, and the relationship between neoliberalism and liberalism it is a sort of, you know, it's a tense and complex relationship because, you know, neoliberalism. You know, neoliberalism was a one of the reasons it was able to get so much traction after the kind of political crises of the 70s was because of its resonances with forms of liberalism, which have been deeply embedded as kind of within sort of middle class culture in particular, uh, you know, in both Britain and the States, you know, more than anywhere else, really, you know, since I mean, since the 18th century, really. Uh, but they're not exactly the same thing, and and there are there are there have always been these tensions between the kind of the full neoliberal program, and it's always, of course, it's you know rhetorically and, and in terms of people's lived experience, it's one of the most effective lines of attack against the neoliberal program. You know the you know that it just does try to, it tries it insists on trying to impose market competitive market relations on social scenes that, I mean, even a lot of conservatives just intuitively feel is wrong. You know, most I mean, in my experience, even most sort of conservatives are uncomfortable with the idea that you should turn a school into into a, a, a as a kind of social site into one that's modeled on like a trading floor you know they don't they don't i mean they can people can just you know have a kind of revulsion to that idea because people understand more or less intuitively that education is a collaborative and cooperative you know exercise like it isn't inherently competitive and if you try to make it like inherently competitive, you're going to create various kinds of social pathology. So I think the extent to which neoliberalism does have to just be violently imposed on, on the situations like, you know, the schools um, is, you know, it is a kind of really important like point of attack for the left. And it's also, I think it's what I think, um, it, I mean, in my experience, it's something that's very easy to point out to people. It's very easy to kind of generate a sort of critical awareness of the situation in people by pointing out that that ex the extent to which, as you say, you know, from the beginning, the neoliberal program has been to impose, 
you know, competitive market relations, even on situations where neoliberals recognise they won't emerge. From- oh, absolutely. Um, there's a really good book by uh, the political theorist Michael Sandel, where he talks about how neoliberal uh, economists have insisted on things like you shouldn't actually give people personalised gifts. Uh, because that's economically inefficient. What you should just give people is cash, because then they can spend it on whatever they want. Uh, And he points out that this is really kind of a perverse idea, if you think about the kind of reciprocal and personalized nature of gift giving. Uh, And I remember at Christmas time, my wife made me a really nice present. Uh, It was kind of a photo uh, scrapbook of our relationship. Uh, I was just kind of thinking, you know, some neoliberal economist would come in here and say like, oh, she shouldn't give you that, right? She should just be giving you a hundred bucks, right? That'd really be more valuable to you, right? Which kind of testifies- (laughs) What's the rational utility of that scrapbook? Yeah, exactly. I went through all these events. I I was there for our relationship. I don't need to be reminded of it. You know, just give me a hundred bucks and I can spend on what I want. Uh, But, you know, I think that your book does a great job of pointing out many instances where people don't adopt this kind of mindset. Uh, And I think probably the one that comes across most prominently uh, that you articulate very powerfully in the text uh, is how popular something like the NHS is, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, where you say that there's kind of this irony, uh, since the UK increasingly prides itself on being a very conservative, very neoliberal society, yet resoundingly the most popular institution in the country is one that was built by socialists. And it remains the most popular institution uh, 70 years after its creation. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, it is, you know, it's a huge, um, I mean, it's a matter of great frustration, I have to say, as a sort of leftist who's grown up in the UK, Mm -hmm. that the left has has never been able to really build on that, you know, popularity of the NHS. And just kind of sell. I mean, not since the, the the kind of Thatcher epoch have we really made a serious effort to kind of build on that and say to people, look, you you, know, you like the way the NHS works. Let's make let's make um things. Let's make you know, other institutions work that way. Of course, that's partly because really, in terms of British politics, it's only it's not it's only really the kind of left wing of the Labour Party, like in in American terms, the equivalent of the kind of Sanders wing of the of the Democrat. Democratic Party who have any real interest in in people thinking that way and it's you know of course it's something that nobody of course no section of the kind of professional political class wants the public to be aware that uh, the Conservative Party opposed the formation of the NHS but also the right wing of the Labour Party opposed the formation of the NHS on those terms and secretly privately you know a lot of them you know a lot of the people who are responsible for Keir Starmer's kind of current program as leader of the Labour Party if you get them you know drunk enough in private they will tell you that they think the NHS was always a bad idea and that we should have had a kind of German style social insurance model and that it's just become this machine that eats up public resources and can never be sufficiently financed and and that we should they should never have let those commies you know get their way in in setting up the National Health Service on those terms you know the government that implemented the NHS was mostly led by people from the kind of right of the party who were you know kind of you know fanatical cold warriors they that is the reason why britain became one of the founder members of nato they engaged in you know they kind of they in they, you know, they were kind of close allies of the new deal administration in the states which also contained you know some really hardcore cold warriors and some really hardcore kind of anti-communists you know as well as well as having had some kind of communist sympathizers in more junior positions um and those guys, and they always saw, at least amongst themselves, they saw the NHS as a concession they've been forced to make to the left of the party and the left of the movement. Um, 
So it wasn't even New Labour, really. It's this older tradition of the kind of old right of the party that always, like, pri I mean, they could never say it publicly, just like the Tories, because it's so popular, even the Tories can never say publicly, we fucking hate the NHS, it's a stupid idea, like, we want to privatise it. Um, but privately, they've always resented it because they've always they've they've always been conscious that you know we got as I say in the book you know it's not the only reason we got it but a key factor in why we got the national health service was because you know the miners of the South Wales coal field were the most militant one of the most militant sections of the working class in in Europe at that time and it, you know it they wanted it so it's never been but but for that reason it's never really been. Like, it's not in anybody's interests apart from the kind of left of the Labour Party. It's not in the interest of the kind of right wing of the Labour Party in its different factions or the Conservatives or anybody to kind of tell the public this this story of the, the NHS's origins. So instead, people get a different story, which is that the NHS was the sort of, um, you know, was a, a manifestation of the benign wisdom of the united political class, you know, during, you know, in the aftermath of World War II. So it is sort of frustrating. Uh, it, it, it is frustrating. That we're never we're, that we're never really able to build on that popularity you know, in the um, in the way that we um, you know that would be really useful because it is you know it is still it, it is a you know it is a really remarkable institution and it's remarkable you know even even you know friends of mine who've grown up in France for example which generally has a much more expansive and robust uh, welfare system you know especially since the 80s than Britain does you know they're always kind of amazed by the, the experience of the NHS when they first have to have any encounter with it you know the the fact that you know for all of its faults for all the all kinds of elements of it have been partially privatized for all that it's underfunded you know the the, the you walk in off the street and, and ask for treatment and you get treatment at, you know to a high standard and you go home again and that's it like nobody asks about payment uh and it uh, and that it is, um, you know, it, it does still stand as a kind of real testament to the to the success of you know certain forms of socialism. I think not just, and it's interesting to think about why people are so attached to it because, of course, you know, the, the objection that all these different uh, political strands, you know, from sort of hardcore neoliberal Thatcherites to kind of these sort of traditional right wing kind of labourites make to it is that it isn't. They they all have some argument as to why it isn't economically efficient. You know, because it does, because, uh, and, the, and their argument, which, you know, on its own terms has some merit is, well, it just creates this, uh, this is ever receding horizon of kind of rising expectations, and especially with an aging population with new illnesses, and, and but also new treatments being coming onto the market continually, then just people's expectations of what it can deliver for them, the, the National Health Service just keep rising and rising and the costs just keep rising forever and it and can never be really contained. Uh, and all of that is true o o on those terms. But what's also true is the reason people become so attached to it and the reason become, you know, this is a cliche, I guess I, some listeners will probably be familiar with, but I, I mean, in my experience, you know, there's lots of reasons to kind of hate living in this stupid country, you know, even if you're American, you know, it's stupid. The weather's bad. The, the political culture is even more stupid than American political culture in many ways. The press, the press and media are worse, even worse than, than in America. But, uh, it, it, but yeah, but if you have kids, especially if people who've experienced like having their first child when they happen to be living here and have experienced the whole kind of have the whole experience of, oh, oh, I've just had a baby and no one is asking for my insurance forms. Nobody's, asking, you know, the whole experience of bringing a baby into the world has just been provided. You know, you just, you just turned up and had the baby.
and sent you home. And then you register with the doctor and the doctor keeps looking, looking after you and the baby. And nobody's asking for money. Just at an effective level, on an emotional and psychological level, it's just so kind of stress-free, like compared to any other system. Like even kind of the European systems where everything does get more or less paid for, but there's just much more bureaucracy. You've got to fill in all these forms. You've got to make these kind of claims and stuff. Um, then it's just so, on, on a kind of psychological and emotional level, it's so much more kind of satisfying. And so, as I say, sort of stress-free that people do become kind of completely attached to it. And people like, you know, people won't go home you know people you know all the i mean it's a really normal it's a really common thing in my experience that americans who go through that experience don't want to go home again until the kids are grown up because you don't want to leave this situation uh and it is so it is um you know it is a kind of remarkable institution in that way and it is a remarkable testament or just at a certain experiential level you know social practical socialism can really raise people's quality of life yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Uh, and there's actually a parallel story uh, in Canada. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the founder of our provincial healthcare in the country was Tommy Douglas, um, who was a member of the Democratic Socialist uh, Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. Uh, and actually, he was ranked in 2004 by a national survey to be everyone's favorite Canadian, right? Uh, and, you know, no, I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. I should, I should know that. That's a great uh, fact, actually. It is, yeah. I, I mean, everyone in Canada has a story about how public health care has let us down, right? And I think it could be a lot better. But certainly uh, for all the effective uh, and economic reasons that you mentioned, I know of no one uh, who is willing to say overtly that they want to get rid of it. Right? There are a couple of fringe cons members of the Conservative Party who occasionally make an argument to that effect, but none of it has really gained any traction since, broadly speaking, public health care is just so popular here. Uh, but you know, moving on to like my last question, which is really a two-part question. Uh, it, uh, the last chapter of your book, you talk about the policies of 21st century socialism would seek to enact uh, and claim that any contemporary socialism must be able to respond to, and I quote, the climate crisis, to the conditions created by the cybernetic revolution and globalization, to the cultural revolution that has produced our postmodern world, and to the effects of neoliberal power. It must confront in the shape of platform corporations the largest concentration of capital in the world has ever seen. So some modest ambitions uh, that you lay out, right? Um, but I was wondering if you could speak to what the program should be, uh, and maybe if in your answer you could incorporate a little bit about why it is that you think a 21st century socialism has proven popular, uh, particularly with youth, but with groups beyond youth as well, also. Uh, you know, in my own kind of work with uh, the New Democratic Party in Canada, I can tell you that there are people in their 60s and 70s uh, who are kind of moving in that direction. Uh, partly because they perceive the world is moving in the wrong direction uh, and they want to kind of steer it back. Oh, well, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I'd like to hear more about that. I didn't know that about the NDP, actually. I didn't because, um, I mean, it's not the case here. I mean, here there's a, a there's a really, I mean, there's, there are there are a cohorts of older people who have been lifelong leftists who've been kind of animated and mobilised by the Corbyn moment, but it's completely... Um, there's a very stark kind of generational divide. So, um, but I mean, in terms of the kind of younger sort of generations, well, I, I think it's just, I mean, to a, I think the first thing to say is that the, the long effects of the Cold War kind of toxification of socialism with, within public culture uh, have, have finally kind of faded, faded away. You know, I lived in, I lived in the States, I lived in Atlanta in, the, in Georgia for a couple of years when I was a kid and I did fourth and fifth grade there. So, uh, you know, and I and I always say to people, you know, if you just well, I did, you know, I, I I lived there for a couple of years in between having lived in the northwest of England, like in Lancashire, for a few years before that, and, I, and I, we moved back there after that. 
for kind of complex family reasons. But, uh, you know, in Lancashire, it was pretty normal to call yourself a socialist uh, in those days. Still is, still is in a, in a lot of places. You know, it's one of the great uh, former industrial regions. It was the heartland of the textile industry. It's one of the birthplaces of modern socialism. It's, you know, it's where Engels wrote the, you know, his book about the working class in Manchester. So there's a long tradition. Uh, not so much Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> and um, I remember the reaction of my fourth grade teacher when I said, oh, I'm a socialist, you know, <laughs> you, you, like you might as well have said you were a Satanist. <laughs> yeah, same look of, you know, immediate shock and then the brain processing the fact that, you know, there are, you know, there are constitutional issues around condemning people's beliefs in the classroom. So, um, uh, and I just and so I kind of watched from a distance. I mean, it's less surprising when talking about Canada, maybe to me anyway, uh, that socialism has become became popular. You know, because uh, the Canadian political culture is pretty different from the Southern United States, anyway. So, but not a lot of people but know that, was, that but, you know, sure. but I think you know, it's really been so. It's really been kind of striking, like seeing just the term and the concept socialism being kind of detoxified. I mean, my perception is to some extent. I don't know actually. To some extent, my perception is it probably has radiated out from the states to other places. Indeed, like to places like Canada and the UK, because the, the states was the kind of epicenter of Cold War anti-communism, anti-socialism, and I sort of have a sense that. Now, every this English speaking world is so kind of people are so connected online now. Everybody's got kind of friends and contacts in different parts of the English speaking world. And I sort of feel like, well, if it, you know, if even America, you know, it was that poll from kind of 2015, I think it was, where of of, of, of people under, thir under 35 in the United States who had kind of majority positive views of feelings about the word socialism that really sort of blew my mind when it happened. I think there's just no logical reason for people to be fanatically anti-socialist apart from a, a huge, like, decades-long campaign, you know, of campaign against socialism, um, which was, you know, which did radiate out from the United States you know, to its various kind of allied countries, like, for decades during the Cold War. So I think it's partly that, and, and it's clearly also, clearly it is also the sort of exhaustion of neoliberalism. I mean, my analysis has always been neoliberalism was really never popular anywhere really it largely it, you know neoliberalism was able to win sort of passive consent amongst populations in return for those populations being offered kind of permanently escalating and historically unprecedented levels of consumption levels of sort of private consumption so from the 70s onwards really in any of the countries we've been talking about and lots of others you know, you look at kind of social attitude surveys, you look at kind of uh, opinion polls, uh, you know, maybe in the States, like for a couple of years, you know, you could say like Reaganism is like really popular. But for the most part, like if you ask people, like, do you think an economic program which like cuts taxes on the rich, cuts public you know, spending on public programs, lowers wages, you know, weakens unions is a good idea? Of course, most people are going to say no. <laughs> most people aren't signed up for that. They might be signed up for other bits of what is offered alongside those programs. You know, the jingoism, the racism, the social reaction. But by the 90s, it's pretty clear that really, you know, people aren't really signed up for any of that stuff. And, and the, But the thing that they are signed up for is... Yeah, they'll go along with the program as long as they're convinced that the political class is going to keep delivering for them, you know, these you know ever cheaper manufactured goods, you know, from coming from China, which they can afford to buy on very cheap credit, even though their wages are declining in real terms, and so you know they feel you know that they're living a relatively luxurious life. They've got bigger TVs, they've got cheaper vacations. 
and that is the thing I think that really that is what secured sort of general consent to neoliberalism. It was never a kind of enthusiasm for neoliberal principles or the neoliberal project or program. And after 2008, after the financial crisis, it just becomes much more difficult for the professional political class to keep extending to people um, ever-expanding opportunities for private consumption. And, in, and indeed, for younger people in particular, those opportunities are, most, are, are visibly and dramatically contracted. So again, it's not that surprising, really, from that point of view, that once you know neoliberalism, which was never very popular anyway, can't even offer people, you know, the material kind of bribes. So it's so I think under those circumstances, it's not that surprising that socialism has become a lot more popular. In terms of what the program would consist of, well, I mean, I think it it's going to vary from context to context, but I think broadly speaking, you know, the the program, you know, the program which gets called uh, in in different uh, places, um, the Green New Deal, you know, probably like, is the best way of understanding the kind of bundle, the bundle of, uh, you know, uh, programs and kind of political projects that would have to the twenty uh, first century socialism or, or the first stages of such would have to involve because it's very clear that you know if we if the if life on Earth is going to survive as we know it or, or anything like what we know it we have to get towards some um, condition of you know, some fairly dramatic levels of decarbonisation and that's either going to happen through like highly authoritarian means, it's either going to happen, either we're all going to basically end up following the Chinese model, you know, of a highly authoritarian state, uh, relatively t closed borders, um, implementing that, or we're going to do it through some means that look like, you know, a kind of re restoration and extension and democratisation of 20th century social democracy, you know, the development of public institutions, um, a kind of extension of the capacities of public bodies to organise various areas of social life and a kind of, demo you know, an extension to some extent of the dem democratic capacities of populations. So in practice, I think that would, that would have to mean... Um, very, I think that would have to mean. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, in the UK, we've had the advance. We we'd had, you know, two uh, general elections for with Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party, and the the contents of the the manifestos were were a pretty good indication, I think, of the kind of suite of policies you would need. So, and those included things like, um, the, you know, taking a taking internet infrastructure into public ownership, making sure that's um, making sure that is um, widely available. That's a kind of publicly, you know, treated as a public, as a publicly funded public service. Um, taking, you know, taking, tra you know, transport infrastructure as much as possible into public ownership. Again, making sure that's treated as a publicly funded public service. Um, you know, using re using government uh, to redirect, you know, where people's kind of work is done, what sectors, you know, people are employed in. So the people are in employed much more in sectors like green technology and conservation environmental restoration much less in kind of socially useless carbon intensive you know uh, manufacturing or, or other kind of um, sectors uh, it would involve I think it would I think it would involve both the extension the extension of the principles both of universal basic services and you know probably forms of, of basic income so examples of kind of the, the extension of universal basic services uh, in this country um, in the UK I think um a really politically necessary example of that would be the establishment of what um, various people have called for under the heading of a national care service. Because I mean, one reason why 
the older generations have gone so dramatically to the right in this country is because the our system of caring for older people is, is completely disintegrated it was completely kind of privatized and it's completely uh, inexpensive and inefficient and so people older people are really kind of feel that you know the welfare state is kind of disintegrated in terms of it, its ability to support them at all and that the only way they can actually have any kind of security in old age is, is by having controlling a kind of huge a, a powerful kind of asset in the in the form of the of a home which they've paid off the mortgage on and can probably you know and can remortgage if they have to to pay for care etc so that would be a really important example I think ideally as well as a kind of horizon t- that we should be moving towards we should be you know socializing uh, in some form institutions like Amazon Facebook Google YouTube of course, that poses all kinds of challenges because that would have to be an international project. I mean, you would have to have a socialist government in the states and a bunch of other countries, and you'd you'd have to. I mean, you'd, you'd at least have to. You'd have to have a socialist government in the states, and you'd have to have you'd have to have um, at least sympathetic um, governments in a, a in a critical mass of EU countries for that to be plausible. But I think it's you know I, I think that's that has to be seen as a sort of aspiration for. Um, socialist because those those you know those organizations those corporations they've created these kind of fantastic infrastructures and they just there's just a no logical reason actually in terms of their functionality in terms of their ability to deliver you know services for users globally that they that they need to be accumulating you know vast profits from from doing that you know they could be turned into giant cooperatives that are just owned by every single user on the planet um so i think that would also have to be part of a kind of lo- that does have to be kind of part, part of a long term horizon i mean I, i'm dubious that we're going to see something like that happening in my lifetime but you know there were generations of socialists who didn't get to see the national health service before they saw it so before it happened and i think we probably do have to be thinking in those terms partly for just obvious kind of practical and political reasons but also because i think rhetorically i mean in my experience it's very powerful you know you point out to people i mean it's an example i use in the book you know especially talking to young people but not only young people you, you know it's very obvious that say an institution like spotify just has no reason to exist as a private institution you know it's making it really difficult for any any musician like with a smaller fan base than taylor swift to make a living and there's just no reason and that's purely because you know billions of dollars are going to the pockets of like a, a handful of people you know the guy who owns it and a couple of hedge funds you know there's just no reason for that to be the case you know, spotify could function just as it does now and it could just give a much bigger chunk of the money it makes to artists and like and who like who doesn't think that's a good idea who 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 of the mil, you know millions of people with spotify subscriptions wouldn't prefer that you know a, a few more dollars of their monthly subscription don't go into the pockets of artists than go into the pockets of these incredibly greedy people who who own it so i think that is, i think those i think that is an example of the kind of um that is an example of the kind of policy I think we do need to be kind of advocating for, even if we have to be realistic about the chances of achieving it in the near term. I mean, especially given that although that you know, that would be a really important policy for the reasons I've outlined, you know, it's clearly not as urgent as, as you know the kind of sweet uh, the whole suite of policies which would do something about uh, about the you know excessive levels of carbon in the atmosphere. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. That was extremely comprehensive, uh, and I have to say. Uh, as a theory podcast, we're not really prone to giving concrete solutions to social problems, right? Things tend to be 
pretty idealized, right? So I really appreciate the fact that you actually seem to have a very uh, well-conceived program of how it is that we can move in a more positive direction. So that's very refreshing for a change, and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that as well. Uh, but anyway, thanks again for coming on. Uh, again, uh, for our listeners, Jeremy's book is 21st Century Socialism by Polity Press. Uh, you can get it online. Very, very good book, uh, short, only about 135 pages uh, and eminently readable. Uh, and Jeremy, I'll just give you the last word like we try to do for our guests. So anything you'd like to say. No, I just thanks for having me on. It's been great. Perfect.